Welcome, everyone. When I was 17 or 18 years old, my dad handed me a little book called Psycho-Cybernetics by Dr. Maxwell Maltz. Um, at the time, I didn't know anything about New Thought Movement, New Age, or anything else. And my father said, here, dearie, I think you might like this little book. And when I read it, it stuck with me the rest of my life. I thought, oh, how interesting. It isn't what we appear to be to the world. It's what we believe we are that's going to matter in how our life turns out. That was the beginning of this journey for me. Well, I have a wonderful guest with us today, Mitch Horowitz, who I've interviewed on Gaia. We did a series called Occult America on the genesis of the new thought and new age movement. And now he's taking it on. He has written his own book. Um, and it's uh, the Miracle Club, which is absolutely wonderful. It's coming out in a few months by, in, I think, Inner Traditions is the publisher. And we're going to talk a little bit about what he's learned along the way by making a life of studying new thought, new age movement, and distilling it down to what really matters. So without further ado, here we go. Mitch, welcome. It's so good to see you here, even though it's virtually instead of in the Gaia studio. Great, right. Thank you. Great to be here. Great to see you. Yeah, and you know, I love what you do because you're thoughtful, you research, it's practical. I mean, you write, your, your articles appear everywhere in very solid journals, you know, even the New York Times, right? So um, I think that's because people respect the level of research and inquiry that you put into these topics. And what I'd like to do is launch into just right off the bat, why did you decide to write The Miracle Club after all the research you've already done and so many books that you think have covered portions of this? Well, I've always described myself as a believing historian and my previous books have primarily been works that track the history and the impact of alternative spiritual and occult movements. And after I published my first book, Occult America, I noticed that a number of people were coming up to me and asking me, do you believe this stuff? Do you believe this stuff? And when I'm asked that question, I give a very ingenuous, yes, yes, I do. I have my own criticisms. I have my own perspectives, my own doorways into these topics. But I'm a participating chronicler of alternative spirituality. And yet, there were a number of people who didn't necessarily know what to think after my first book. I think my second book, One Simple Idea, which was a history of the positive mind movement, people began to understand that I was working with these ideas as well uh, in a practical, hands-on way. And I've done several books since then, but I wrote The Miracle Club because I felt like I really needed to come to terms with personal practice. What, what do I do? What do I think works? I'm dedicated to new thought and to various strains of new thought. And the truth is this notion that thoughts are causative is really the kernel of almost all of our alternative spiritual systems. I mean, that really is the, the beating heart at the center of most of our alternative spiritualities and many of our mainstream spiritualities. And I really had to ask myself, look, the modern New Thought movement, or whatever you want to call it by whatever name, has been with us, say, for 150 years. It's really time to come to a reckoning of, what works? What's defensible? What's practical? And that's what the Miracle Club is about. There's history in the book, and you'll find the same voice in that book that you'll find in my other books, but it's really practical, hands-on techniques and methodology. And I, I try to share with the reader what's practical here. What can you really use in your 
hour-to-hour life. And by that, I really mean next Tuesday at 3 o'clock because you have to be able to measure the impact of these things in daily life. And I think measure it in the most concrete way. So that's really the, the aim that I set out with in writing this book. Yeah, the practical part is what I what I really pick up on in your work. I mean, the wonderful chronicling you did in Occult America, we, I think we did two or three shows on that. It was so much fun. Everybody loved it. But the reality is to use it. And um, you have kind of a, uh, a conflicted relationship in, on one level with the word, the words new age, as do I. And that's because of a perception that this is something that has turned into kind of a, a fuzzy way of viewing morality, spirituality, and so forth. But you're saying, on the other hand, no, new age still has a place if you use it in a mature and respectful way. Let's talk about the word or the, the phrase new age and what that means to you and how we begin the process of maturing it rather than just looking at pictures on a vision board and thinking we're going to make $5 million next year. Right. And I think that's right on. I, I do embrace the term new age. I describe myself by the term new age. And to me, it means very simply therapeutic spirituality. It's, it's that simple. It's a, it's a radically ecumenical culture of therapeutic spirituality. Why there's so much heat and friction around the word, around the term, or why there's this resistance to defining it, I'm not always sure, because it can be defined, and I don't think the word should be sacrificed, I don't think the word should be ceded to critics who just use it as a kind of epithet to describe everything that's unrealistic or squishy, you know, in in our spiritual lives. At the same time, the New Age culture is permeated by a childish tone, by a lot of people, frankly, who are fleeing the responsibilities of outer life, by a poor administrative business and scholarly culture. And I feel at liberty to say these things because I've defined myself by the term new age and function within its culture for well over 20 years until recently I was the vice president and executive editor of a new age imprint at Penguin Random House. I've spoken nationally and internationally like you at new age conferences and alternative spiritual conferences of every sort. I've worked with the various superstars in the field and, and, and some people whose names are lesser known. And I've gotten to see how the sausages are made and it ain't always pretty. You know, there's a great deal of, childishness in in tone, in historicity, in professionalism within the New Age world, and that's partly, partly a mark of the success of New Age. New Age has always been anti-hierarchy, and that's terrific. A lot of us who come to the alternative spiritual scene are running away from very strictly stratified religious cultures. We want to do our own thing. People use the term cafeteria religion as an insult. To me, that's not an insult. Anybody who wants to call me a practitioner of cafeteria religion is entirely welcome to. I view religion as combinative and syncretic and very free-flowing and open. And that's what's beautiful about the New Age. But the success of all that, the success of all that has has meant that we've also attracted an outsized portion of people who are unwilling to, or frankly, unable to deal with some of the norms of outer life. And for them, do your own thing, so to speak, 
becomes a excuse for flakiness, for unaccountability, for unreliability. And that's not what we need in the new age. Yeah, we can put up with some of that. Every movement has its lost sheep and lost sheep are welcome. Lost sheep are welcome. But there comes a point where this notion of not being accountable, this notion of not knowing where the bathroom is at the spiritual center, and this has happened, and, and I'm being glib, of course, but this proclivity not to be accountable, professional, good at record keeping, scholarly, be grounded in history, these things I don't see as virtues. That, that's not go with the flow. And sometimes people who are kind of masking a proclivity towards flakiness, frankly, use the go with the flow culture of new age as an excuse, as an escape hatch. And I think it's time our culture did some growing up. It's time it did some growing up. I couldn't agree more with you, having lived so many years in Sedona, where that really kind of predominates. And, you know, honestly, it seemed in my own experience from, you know, reading Maxwell Maltz's book all those years ago, um, through the 1980s, when it was really a burgeoning of a lot of channelers, for example. Yes. A lot of people coming up with channeled information and down, download, downloading information. Some yeah. of it was beautiful information. And some of these people were totally legit. I mean, there are a couple that I still very much cherish and honor to this day because of the quality of information. But a lot of it, no, not really. It was people kind of tapping into their own desires, their own minds, their own subconscious, subconscious yeah. and, and calling it uh, enlightened channeled information, which had no accountability at all. Let's talk about what happened for a moment in the 1980s and 1990s that kind of created this loosening or lax uh, demand for any kind of accountability, as you just said. Well, there's an impulse in American spiritual culture that, again, is a very noble impulse, which is that anybody can pierce the veil to the other side. Anybody can serve in the role of prophet. It's a very exciting, alluring idea, and there's a lot of truth to it. If you look at a figure like Edgar Cayce, an everyday man who became this extraordinary medical clairvoyant. If you look at a woman like uh, Helen Shuckman, the scribe for Course in Miracles. Helen was a, a research psychologist at Columbia, an atheist or an agnostic, not somebody who went looking for the mantle of prophecy, but it found her. It found her. And that's very beautiful. And people are inspired by that. And they should be inspired by it. But it also plays into the ego where certain people say, well, wait a minute. You know, I can wear the mantle of prophecy. You know, I can play this part. I am special. I am unique. I am downloading a message. And it becomes a point where we're like an army of generals in, in a certain sense. And, of course, the only channel teachings that have any posterity are those that seem to offer something universal and applicable and practical. A lot of channel material has just blown away like, the leaves of last autumn. Some of it lasts. You know, there are some remarkable figures out there. But it's it, this tendency of everyone to want to be a channel or claim to be a channel 
it's, it's an excess of a good thing, you know, in the same way that medicine is healing or poison is based on the dosage. And I think we've just gotten an excess of dosage from time to time. Yeah, that, that's a good way to put it. So you kind of like to go back to some of the basics, the ones that actually worked, and one of them I have in my hand here, Napoleon Hill, of course. And I know, I think he's still one of your favorites, right? He is, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And this is the beautiful new, and look at this beautiful red foil, the new deluxe version of Psycho-Cybernetics. I just yeah. love it. You gave me this last time I saw you. and. Yeah. Again, I started just kind of popping through it, opened it to a couple of pages. And again, some of the wisdom from that time um, has, has withstood the test of time. Oh, yeah, yeah. And because when people ask you today, so who are you into? What's really impressing you? You're saying, not much. Not much. That's Let's talk about that. Yeah, yeah. I... Right now, across our alternative spiritual culture... I haven't discovered very many new voices that I found very exciting or alluring. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, of course, in saying that, get a rush of emails like, well, you have to learn about my guru. Because, you know, we're all certain that we're living right next door to the exception of that. But my mission right now, both in terms of my personal spiritual practice and in terms of what I'm writing about, is to kind of get back to basics to rediscover the basics, but in a really rigorous way. Like for example, you held up Think and Grow Rich. When I have friends who are stuck in life, I very often give them a copy of Think and Grow Rich and I tell them, go home and read this book, but there's a, there's a principle to it that's gonna unlock the book to you and take it seriously. Do the exercises as if your life depends upon it. And that's the true principle of the book. You can't say to yourself, Oh, I'm a veteran. I know some of this stuff already. I'm going to skip some of the list making, or I'm going to skip this or that, or I'll skim this chapter on faith because I get that. None of us get it. None of us get it. The turnkey to every serious spiritual or self-help program is a ravenous desire for self-change, a ravenous desire for self-change. If the individual has that desire, then almost any good teaching, whether it's the 12 steps or Course in Miracles or Edgar Casey's principles or Think and Grow Rich, will be transformative, will work for you. Without that, without that, it's casting your bread on the waters. There's just nothing there. There's an Arab proverb, the way bread smells depends on how hungry you are. The way bread smells depends on how hungry you are. I'm absolutely persuaded that that key of ravenous hunger for self-change will unlock everything. Uh, you held up Psycho-Cybernetics. We both have a deep, deep love for that book. Now, interestingly enough, that's really a secular book. Maxwell Maltz didn't say very much about spirituality. Maxwell Maltz, when he published the book in 1960, was a pioneering cosmetic surgeon. And it was from his work as a, cognitic, as, a, as a cosmetic surgeon that he gleaned these really remarkable, intimate insights about how we form self-image and how self-image plays out in our lives. And Maltz felt that self-image was destiny, but self-image could also be reprogrammed. And the interesting thing about Maltz's book is it's filled with practical ideas, but at the base of it, at the base of it, it really requires... Uh, at least, at least 
one hour of meditation a day, a half hour of sort of Zen-like relaxation, and a half hour of visualizing and reimagining your life and your persona. And there are other exercises to be sure, but basically it's two half hour periods of meditation a day, which might have to be added to some other meditative practice that you have if you practice maybe a mantra-based form of meditation. And at first, that doesn't sound too challenging, but it really is. Because of course, everything in our lives, everything in our consumer culture conspires to rob us of quiet time. Most people, including, I think, you know, friends of ours listening to this broadcast can't even sit for 10 minutes a day, never mind a full hour of, of, of you know, a half hour of Zen-like, just sitting meditation, a half hour of visualization. So I tell people when they pick up psychocybernetics, do they realize the challenge that it presents to us in 21st century life to sit quietly for one hour each day? Most people don't do it, and they won't do it, and they won't discover that they won't do it because they won't even try. So in getting back to the basics, we sometimes discover the barriers that are in front of us, and they're, they're enormous. They're enormous. I mean, most people will not even try. So it'll never even resonate with them. What's the big deal, an hour of meditation a day? But the precious few that will try are in for good news because the truth is, if you're ravenously hungry, these programs will work, but you have to do everything and you have to do it with absolute commitment. It doesn't matter if your friends think you're a lunatic. Don't talk to your friends about it. You know, it doesn't matter if your kids think you're going crazy. You know, let your kids play their video games. Do this for yourself. Do it every day. And anytime you approach a program with a sustained, passionate maturity, a real adult passion, not a childish passion of just, I'll try this and if it doesn't work, I'll do this, but an adult passion, things will happen. Things will change. But that passion is, is the turnkey to everything. So I'm in a real back to basics kind of mood. And, and so for me, books like Psychocybernetics, Thinking We're Rich, and you know, many, many others, um, they return me to that place. And that's the kind of that was the inspiration for my title of the book, The Miracle Club. The Miracle Club is actually about a book of occult explorers who gathered together in the 1870s here in New York City, where I live, and that became the precursor to the Theosophical Society. And they were a group of people who said, what is out there? What is out there? That was their question. And I want to reignite the passion and the inquisitiveness of the early Miracle Club. And that's what we all are. And anybody can kind of join it instantly. It's just a question of having passionate, sustained appetite for self-experimentation. And that's, that's what the book is about. So when we start looking into these, we run up against concepts that sometimes seem almost contradictory because you're talking about taking a very mature approach, a very focused approach. And at the same time, as psychocybernetics will point out, um, you must be very relaxed in this. It can't be effort. You can't effort your way through it. Right. Now, right. <clears throat> right. And so people think, ah, oh, how do I focus intensely without effort? And I mean, it does guide you through this. These books have other principles underlaying that. And a lot of it does have to do just with the quality and repetition of the type of desire. And this is really key. Napoleon Hill's book, Desire. And this has been a much maligned word in the New Age movement, especially in Zen Buddhist circles, for example. And 
in fact, there is nothing that can come to fruition without, as you say, that incredibly intense desire that to have that thirst quenched. So maybe for just a moment, uh, just spend a moment talking about an apparent uh, seeming conflict between effort and no effort in, yeah, along the way. It's a wonderful, wonderful question. There's a couple of things to unpack there. First of all, and I, I read about this in the book, I venerate Buddhist tradition and I venerate Vedic tradition, but those are not my paths. Those are not my paths. The place I've come to as a seeker at the age of 52 and having been on this road for a fair amount of time is that desire is sacred. I believe in aspirational spirituality. If we are created in the image of the higher, if we are made in the image of the creator, then I think it behooves us to treat our desires as sacred things, as an urge toward productivity, as an urge toward generativity. The book of Genesis, as with many other creation stories around the world and from varying cultures, begins with an act. It begins with the creation of a place amidst the chaos, the creation of sentient beings, the creation of intelligent men and women who finally eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And pain and suffering is introduced into their world, but so is measurement, judgment, discrimination, sensitivity, relationships, children, suffering, joy, euphoria, disappointment, victory. If we are made in the image of the Creator, then we are here to be generative, to be productive. And we, of course, owe our allegiance to both worlds, the transcendent world and the material world. I think the greatest statement on that appears in the Gospels when uh, Jesus speaks of rendering unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. He doesn't speak of extracting oneself from the world. Yes, he speaks of being in but not of the world. We belong to both the transcendent and to the material. And I truly believe in my heart of hearts, and I would say this to to all of your listeners, I don't think that the individual can truly be happy in life. And we mustn't shy away from simple words like happy. There's an enormity in that word. And we mustn't say, oh, spiritual people don't use that word. We think in terms of non-attachment. We think in terms of non-identification. The pursuit of happiness causes suffering. I reject that. I think we have to use the plain language of everyday life that we grew up with. I don't believe that the individual can be happy in this world unless he or she is productively moving in the direction of some sense of ethical personal aspiration, some sense of ethical personal aspiration. And I define ethical aspiration by being simply that which doesn't um, block or limit or set off parameters on another person's uh, search to attain his or her own highest aspiration. Anything that doesn't violate another's wish to develop potential, I would describe as ethical aspiration. And we cannot be happy, ultimately, unless we are moving in that direction. And I have had friends, and you have friends, who have been dedicated to contemplative religion and meditative philosophies for decades, and sometimes find themselves at a terrible dead end. And I believe in my heart there is a unique act of self-realization in personal aspiration, whatever that may mean to an individual, whether you want to be a soldier or an artist or an entrepreneur or in clergy or a successful business owner, whatever it is 
that summons up from you that deepest, most sustained sense of desire that you've carried with you since childhood. And if you let yourself, you know where it is. You know where it is. And that's where the joy comes in. Because discovering that is such an intimate, private, personal act that gives you a sense of self-agency that it's it's an effort that you should enjoy it's an effort that should come with an electricity an exuberance of self-discovery it should be arousing it should be intimate you don't have to go around blurting to everyone you meet what your definite chief aim is that's your own private act of discovery and when you find it and you will find it if 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 the individual really wants to acting on that i think is sacred and my counsel and I say this to your listeners, as I would say to a friend, as I would say to a member of my own family, don't allow yourself to get distracted with these kind of vocabulary words that we, we grok onto too easily in the new age culture, like essence versus personality, attachment versus non-attachment, identification, suffering, spiritual materialism. These are words that get drawn from translations of translations of translations of ancient Eastern literature that was written in a different time and place and very often translated, so to speak, by people who don't always, and who in fact rarely do, have mastery over the very tongue in which these works were written. We mustn't get into a routine of catechism within the New Age culture, where we start to grok to certain terminology and lingo and lexicon and vocabulary and we decide this is inner this is outer this is spiritual this is non-spiritual i say throw out the vocabulary book forget about all that there's sacredness in individual desire and frankly i think each of us feel that Absolutely. Uh, amen. You're speaking to the choir on this one. I'm a big advocate for finding that spark of desire within you, and there are many paths to it. But if you don't find it, life is never going to feel full, complete. Um, you're not going to have a starting point. And one of the things now that's interesting is Napoleon Hill, think and grow rich. So a lot of people think, oh, how non-new way, think and grow rich. Now we have money in the equation. And at the same time, your new book is saying, hey, you have to take your finances and your ability to work around in the world as part of your welfare and your well-being. And it's silly to just throw it out uh, because of some new age adage or thought process. Right. So <clears throat> I just wanted to point out one thing before we go into that. Napoleon Hill was also saying that these riches may simply be greater harmony in your family. Right. Happiness is a major part. Discover and understand your happiness. He wasn't just talking about money, even though the original research was based on Fortune 500, the top well, 500 wealthiest guys in the world, and we're going to get on that in a moment too. So please comment. Sure. You know, um, you're, you're, you're absolutely correct. Uh, some people are very turned off by thinking we're rich because they feel the title itself seems gauche and materialistic and unspiritual. They feel like they'll be embarrassed, you know, to be seen reading it in Starbucks or on the subway or whatever. <laughs> and I understand that. I, I get it, you know. Um, in New York City where I live, you know, the intellectual culture is such that everyone wants to seem very serious and everyone wants to seem real and nobody wants to be seen reading Think and Grow Rich at the New York Public Library where I have a residency at the moment. But I say that 
anybody with any ethical aim in life who's not reading Think and Grow Rich is doing him or herself a disservice because the book is really about concretizing your plans. It's about bringing your plans into action. He used the title Think and Grow Rich because, first of all, he wanted to attract public attention and he was a great communicator. And let's face it, most people do feel that what they need in this life is more money. And when he wrote the book, in 1937, just as we were beginning to inch out of the Great Depression in this country, that was the chief concern in almost every household. And he spoke with a megaphone, with a megaphone. He wanted to shout it from the rooftops. He was a great communicator, and he hit upon maybe the greatest self-help title in modern history. Um, the book can be read by anyone with any Aim. It doesn't have to be riches. It can be completing your dissertation. It can be uh, retiring from the Navy as an officer. It can be becoming a, a great stage actor or having a peaceful household. The only demand the book places on you is that you have one central demand. There's nothing squishy or wishy-washy in the book. It, 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 it really puts the onus on the individual of coming up with one definite central chief aim. And people always want to fight with that and push that away and say, well, you know, I wear many hats. I'm a, I'm a parent. I'm, I'm a professional. I, I'm a caregiver. I have all kinds of things I want to do. I think life makes a tough but just bargain with us. And that is that accepting some kind of overwhelming uh, countervailing force like a health problem or a severe accident or uh, the circumstances of geography, accepting some significant countervailing force, we get whatever we truly want in life, but we must know what that is. That's the tough bargain life grants us. It's almost like a genie coming to you and saying, I'm gonna grant you uh, one wish, but it's on the condition that you tell me the absolute truth of what you want or you'll lose everything. And immediately when we want to start arguing and we want to think, there must be a trick. I can say I want joy and that'll cover all the bases. And it's like, that's not really life's bargain. Life's bargain is be very specific, very clear, very actionable, very narrow. And you'll get it. But you have to be very specific. And of course, discounting enormous countervailing forces like health or some natural, you know, active geography or something. Interesting. Now, this gets into another kind of shadowy area because, of course, all the people that were interviewed in that book, you know, that particular book, Think and Grow Rich, were men. I don't know if there was a single woman that was interviewed. And you're talking about this one thing, knowing that having your mind very clear on this one thing that yeah. you used to express. Yeah. Yet, let's take women. Um, you can take people of color because it was mostly all white men, not just men, but white men, okay? Yeah. Um, white men, in terms of studies that have been done, have a higher level of serotonin because they have a higher level of understanding their place in the world, of confidence and so forth, that creates these chemical you know, chain reactions. Mm -hmm. So now, how, what would you say to, for example, a woman who, yes, she has a purpose. It's like, I really want to bring this to the fore in my life. But at the same time, I really don't want to fall down in my job as a mother and so forth. I mean, women tend to be a lot more split and a lot more multitasking 
Yeah. Harder to go into that same mode of focus. What would you say to us? Yeah, that's a wonderful question, and you're absolutely right on in, in, in pointing that out. This book was written in 1937, and not only is it mostly whiskered white men who make up all the examples in the book, but there are actually gender and ethnic stereotypes that appear in the book because of the time in which it was written. Now, here's what I would say, and I, I want to give you a really honest and frank answer because the last thing on earth I want to do as seeker to seeker is give you or any of your viewers some canned answer, you know, like it's all the more important that you read it or whatever. <laughs> Here's what I think, because I've wrestled with this question myself. We live in a household here in New York City where my wife works, we raise two sons, and believe me, it ain't easy. You know, this is, we don't come from wealthy backgrounds, neither of us are trust fund babies, mom and dad have no big influence or, you know, anything like that. So, you know, this is a home in a two-bedroom apartment where we are raising two adolescent boys in a noisy city where both parents work. It is a challenge to turn to a book like Think and Grow Rich or another and say, this is my chief aim, especially when you're forced by society to wear these different hats. Women are forced and people of color are forced to deal with all kinds of burdens that white men are not forced to deal with. And it can seem almost cruel to say, well, these are the breaks, you know, just choose one aim. My counsel would be, and I would say this to a member of my own family or to a dear friend, one aim, one beautifully, exquisitely, carefully selected aim that really comes from the most private place within you can cover a lot of different bases. It can cover a lot of different bases. It might mean, it might mean an exclusion of certain things. There might be certain things that don't come to the forefront in an individual's life when he or she is dedicated to one absolute aim. I have to be frank about that. The truth is, if you or anybody viewing this thinks of someone they regard as a hero in life, whoever it is, whether it's an unknown person, just an everyday person, or whether it's someone world famous, like a Nelson Mandela, or a Gandhi, or a Helen Keller, or whatever, Steve Jobs, you'll almost always find that that person existed for that one thing, that one thing. You know, I interviewed Martin Luther King's eldest daughter, Yolanda, before she died of heart failure several years ago. And she said to me, and this interview was up online, you know, daddy was not always around. He wasn't always everything that you would have hoped for in a father, but he was freeing the whole nation. You know, Gandhi would have, Gandhi's kids would have said the same thing. You know, Helen Keller's determination in life was that she would make it so that no one could look at a disabled or differently abled person exactly the same way again. And you can bet, you can bet that every exceptional person whose life you search within, whether artist, soldier, statesman, student, scientist, whatever, there probably are certain areas in which they fell down. There probably are certain areas in which they weren't everything their kids would have liked them to be. There weren't everything that their neighbors or their spouses would have liked them to be. 
their aim covered a lot of bases, but it didn't cover everything. It didn't cover everything. You know, I'm sure that there's someone out there in this generation or the next generation who's going to cure cancer, you know, but if you go back and you look at the hours of their day-to-day -day life, they may have been grossly lacking in certain traits that one would hope for in an individual. And I do believe that there are certain things we can't neglect. If we neglect health, if we neglect family, in the long run, those things will eventually engulf and take up all of our attention. What we don't give due attention to now, we run the risk of it taking all of our attention later. So I'm not promising that you can, you know, mount a unicorn and go riding off into perfect sunsets. But I am promising that you will not wind down life with a feeling of regret that you didn't give yourself over to your highest sense of development, aspiration, productivity, generativity. And I do think that selecting a definite aim presents us with a challenge. A good aim can cover a lot of bases, financially, emotionally, even relationally. But I have to admit, I have to admit, that if you look at the lives of people you really admire, famous or unknown, you will almost always, almost without exception, find an obsessional quality in that person. Right. You know, I don't know whether Steve Jobs was a good tennis player or not. You know, I don't know whether Winston Churchill uh, was nice to his kids. You know, I, I don't mean that in a glib way. I don't mean that in a coarse way. I just mean that you know, people who really lived out some sense of purpose and greatness were not always well-developed in every area of life. I think that's a tough bargain. Life, it is. It? I agree. It is a tough bargain. And, and, and it's realistic. Everything you've said is realistic. The reality is we can still live a life that's full, we may not ever have the money or notoriety. You, the, the, in this day, there we were talking about people like Henry Ford, um, Andrew Carnegie, and yeah. so forth. We may not be, uh, as you say, a Nelson Mandela or a Mother Teresa or whatnot in the scope of you know our legend by the end of our lives. But that doesn't mean that you can't fulfill that desire within. You're doing it. I'm doing it. I've been able to live the path I've wanted to live for a very long time. Yes, there was a price to pay. I wanted to be a mom. I wanted to be there for my son. And at the same time, a television producer and host of alternative material. And I've been doing this for, gosh, you know, 25, 30 years in the alternative scope, not just mainstream media. And for me, it happened in a way that was very kind of clear and very gentle. Yeah. And I daydreamed my way into each project. I would think about it, daydream. And in the time, it would come out literally, for me, it would come out literally that way. At the same time, I never made the amount of money I could have made by just focusing on my media career. I didn't want just that. So yeah. same with you. I mean, you've done actually quite well for yourself pursuing the things that you believe in and love. Um, this whole genre of information as a publisher, as a writer, and so forth. So I think there's... I, I really appreciate what you said about that in a pragmatic sense, and it doesn't mean it should stop anybody from pursuing that spark of desire. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Uh, it's 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 interesting, you know. We we 
we, we get taught by the consumer society almost because it wants to sell this image back to us that we can do everything. We can't quite do everything, but we can do a tremendous amount. We can do a tremendous amount and we can do more than we think we can. But it all rests upon finding that thing that one wants to do, that definite chief aim. And some people really push back against that because they say, well, I don't have a definite chief aim. And you, know, you have to ask, do you, do, you, do, you, do you want one? Because entertainment and just kind of punching the clock and then reaching for the chips and beer and television clicker, that can be very relaxing in a certain sense. But then we find that we've wound up giving our lives over to entertainment and you know there's that old expression and I say this in the book and some people don't like this but there's that old expression no one goes to his or her deathbed wishing they had spent more time at the office right so sure that's true I'm not so sure that old expression is true because forget about it being the office Maybe it's the studio, maybe it's the athletic field, maybe it's the, the stage, maybe it's the screen, maybe, you know, it's something else. There may be something that we owe some of ourselves to that we haven't given. I'm not so sure that old expression is true. I think people do things at their offices, entrepreneurs, founding businesses. The founding of a business is a tremendous act of self-realization tremendous act of self-realization. People who are doing that are answering a calling within themselves. I don't think they go to their deathbed regretting that. I hear you on that. It's, it's interesting putting it that way. You're right. <laughs> no one's really challenged that statement before. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Mitch, let's talk about some of the kind of effective uh, uses of various, various um, techniques and such that you're exposing yeah. in your new book. Well, here's one that I was just thinking about this morning, actually. In the book, and I, I won't go into all the metaphysics, but I asked myself the question in the book, is there a theory of positive thinking? If we believe, and I think all of us here, you know, you, me, your viewers, we believe that in some measure thoughts are causative. I think if we're on the spiritual path, we probably uh, feel to some greater or lesser degree, and some of us quite strongly that that statement is true. Why? Why is that true? Why should that be true? If we assume we're not imagining it, and we assume that thoughts are causative, that thoughts have some extra physical agency that help determine in a very concrete way what's going to happen to us in the world, why should that be? And one of the ideas I work with in the book, and I'm not going to say much about it here, uh, is that it may be that time is not linear, that everything is happening at once, and linearity is only an illusion that helps us get through the day. So I know I have an appointment to talk to Regina at noon EST, and that seems very real and very concrete to me. But linearity, I think we're probably discovering in the particle sciences and in psychical research, precognitive research, is an illusion. And I think some of us, and in fact, seekers throughout millennia have had the impression at highly sensitive moments that that's an illusion. So consider what that means. Consider the opportunities that that illusion of time presents to us. We often like to engage in the fantasy, what would I tell my younger self if I could go backwards? What if that were more than just a figurative question? What if what you would tell your younger self could actually be going on right now in the here and now? If we agree to this thought experiment, let's say, that time is not linear, that linearity is an illusion, then it stands to reason 
that you and I could perhaps go back and talk to our younger self because there is no going back because it's all happening right now. Imagine what a responsibility that places on your shoulders, what an opportunity and what a risk that is. You know, we like to play mental games with ourselves and say, what would I go back and undo in my life? What, what accident would I avert? What, what sorrow would I change? Would I rearrange? What relationship would I avoid? That's a very risky proposition, of course, because we grow through friction. We grow through difficulty. People who suffer from anxiety, for example, are often exquisitely sensitive people. People who suffer from depression, for example, can be extremely um, empathetic uh, people. These areas in which we suffer aid the process of maturation. Terrible mistakes are also teachers. We all know this. So undoing something painful from the past could also undo some mature quality that we rightfully take pride in in the here and now. So be very careful about these discussions with our younger self. However, I do believe that all of us as beings created in the image of something higher have the capacity in moments for higher perspective. So go into a meditative state, go into a meditative state, make a sustained search for what you really truly think you'd want to tell your younger self and what you'd be willing to sacrifice for it because there may be some sacrifice entailed. Averting something can also mean an opportunity lost. So granted, use your perspective, and I do believe, I do believe that sensitive men and women have moments of higher perspective. I don't think that's illusory. And ask yourself, what would I tell my younger self? And boy, ask that question very, very carefully. Because if time is illusory, then that opportunity may exist. And in fact, we may be exercising it all the time. Exercise it in a productive way. Exercise it in a youthful way. So that's one exercise that could take us to the outer edges of questioning what is life? What is time? What are our minds? What, are, what is this world that we really live in and do we see it clearly? But it also puts us in front of a remarkable possibility that this, this kind of fanciful wish to go back and give advice to our younger self may not be so fanciful after all. We may be doing it all the time. Do it carefully. Do it carefully. Okay, so what would you go back and tell your younger self? Or what have you gone back to tell your younger self? That's very interesting. I made, at the end of the Miracle Club, I made a list of things that I would tell my younger self had I the opportunity. One of the things I would tell my younger self, and bear in mind, there can be losses you know, for this. Choose the company in which you place yourself very, very, very carefully. Do not locate yourself around people who you think are cool or whose acceptance you want or who are rejecting or negative towards intrinsic traits in you because you want approval. Be very, very careful about not seeking peer approval. Another thing I told my younger self, and this may sound kind of peculiar, but it had a special meaning to me. Um, when you're going to school, when you're going to school, every single day, get yourself there on your own by foot or by bike, regardless of what the weather is. Doesn't matter if it's a blizzard, doesn't matter if it's a snowstorm, doesn't matter if it's a hurricane. 
teach yourself this lesson of self-agency, that a little rain or snow or a thunderstorm doesn't matter. Get yourself to school on your own, always and no matter what. Learn how to use your body, meditate, uh, learn a martial art, exercise your body, and above all, cultivate a sense of independence. Go your own way. Better to be alone than to be in a bad relationship. And always and above all, my key rule for life is avoid gossip and rumor and avoid people who traffic in it. It's a poison. It chokes off our potential. It's almost the worst thing that we can engage in in life because the things that we, the stories that we trade, traffic in, and that we participate in, listen to, pass on, they are as affecting of our own sense of self as they are of the reputations of others that we speak of. Nothing will free you more in life. And I mean this, I'm talking like right now, nothing will free you more in life than the determination not to participate in gossip and rumor. There's an esoteric meaning to the golden rule that a lot of us don't uh, grasp, don't see through to. And if you can avoid media, entertainment, conversations, relationships that are steeped in gossip, humiliation, and rumor, you will ennoble yourself and you'll feel the effects immediately. People want to know, what can I do right now? Do that. If you can't meditate, do that. Yeah. That is absolutely, it's simple, direct, beautiful, and profound. I mean, I just, uh, we could talk for days. There are many more things we could talk about, but you don't have time to talk for days. So with that, just any kind of quick update on any kind of events you have coming up. Um, we know the book isn't coming out until October, and I think you'll have everybody waiting for it that's heard this interview. So what's up besides the book? Well, this week, uh, at, we're, we're in the first week of May. I'm speaking in Los Angeles on uh, the 10th and 11th, Thursday, uh, May 10th, Friday, May 11th, at the University of Philosophical Research, the organization founded by Manly P. Hall. If you can't be at those talks, those talks will also be up on YouTube. Uh, I just completed a column called Real Magic at Medium.com, where I write about a lot of these methods. I'm working on a new column right now called Radical Spirits about politics and spirituality. And the Miracle Club is up for pre-order anywhere you buy your books. It comes out in the month of October. Mitch, thank you so much for taking the time to do this amidst your busy schedule. I absolutely love chatting with you because you always offer very grounded and practical information in an age uh, what do we call it? The post-truth era, right? <laughs> You're still about truth. You take it on. Thank you so much, Mitch. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Great being here. Until next time, remember the name of the book is The Miracle Club, which you can pre-order. Until next time, uh, thank you for joining us here on ReginaMeredith.com. <laughs>